One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Commanders at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, October 15th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42 and a half. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Washington's defense has been shredded in recent weeks and is most vulnerable via the pass, but Atlanta's offense is built around the run. Only one Falcons game this season has combined for more than 40 points, while the Commanders have been part of three games through five weeks that featured 60 or more points. Sam Howell leads the league in sacks taken through five weeks, but the Falcons' defense ranks last in the league in sacks. Atlanta ranks top 10 in the NFL in man coverage rate, and the Washington receivers have struggled so far this season. The Falcons have not had much success through the air this season, but Washington is by far the worst pass defense they have seen to date. How Washington will try to win. The Commanders have thrown the ball at the second highest rate in the NFL through five weeks. A big part of that statistic has been game script, as they have fallen behind several times this season, including last week's embarrassing loss to the Bears. However, they have also shown a willingness to let Sam Howell throw the ball around the yard and are not afraid to play to a matchup's path of least resistance. This week, they face a Falcons team that ranks 7th in the NFL in run defense DVOA and 29th in pass defense DVOA. The Commanders have scored at least 20 points in 4 of 5 games this season, with the lone exception being their drubbing at the hands of the Bills in suboptimal weather conditions. The Falcons' defense is solid, but not on the same level as Buffalo. Head coach Ron Rivera would love to have a team built on their defense, but so far this year their defense has been extremely disappointing. At this point, the Commanders have to be aware that they are going to need to score 24 or more points to win most weeks. The Cardinals in Week 1 are the only team that Washington has held in check, and this Falcons team is more efficient than giving credit for. I would expect the Commanders to open this game with a balanced approach, but to be somewhat aggressive to try and get on top and or stay within striking distance early. Sam Howell has taken an egregious amount of sacks this season, and the Falcons' defense ranks 5th in the NFL in both sacks and QB pressure rate. There will almost certainly be a priority for Washington to get the ball out of Howell's hands quickly, with their running backs, tight ends, and Curtis Samuel likely to be targeted often, rather than challenging the Falcons' very talented perimeter cornerbacks. A.J. Terrell is a former first-round pick who often takes on shadow coverage of the opponent's top wide receiver. Opposite him is D. Alford, who ranks third out of 68 qualifying cornerbacks in PFF coverage grade. The Commanders have had a broad target distribution, and that should continue this week with the perimeter receivers being in a tough matchup and Howell needing to get rid of the ball quickly. The Commanders would likely prefer to let Brian Robinson carry the load, but their defense has not shown the ability to let them have that type of game script this year. Robinson tends to dominate the workload on early downs and when the Commanders are ahead, while Antonio Gibson works in a pretty even split with him in negative game scripts. How Atlanta will try to win The Falcons' offense is built around their running game first and foremost, with a focus on leveraging their approach to create explosive plays through both the run and pass. Their personnel is very good and fits what they are trying to do. They have two very good running backs, two athletic and versatile tight ends, an alpha wide receiver in Drake London, and an underrated wide receiver counterpart in Mac Hollins. Quarterback Desmond Ritter is coming off his best game of the season and now faces a defense that has been reeling. A couple of weeks ago, people were wondering if Justin Fields was even worthy of playing quarterback in the NFL, and he looked like Patrick Mahomes against the Commanders on a short week in Week 5. 
Given the explosive weapons this team possesses and the struggles that Washington has been having, we can't expect Atlanta to perform at a reasonable to above average level this week. The Commanders are below average against the run and downright awful against the pass. Atlanta's run-heavy game plans will certainly stay the same to start this game, but their calculated intermediate and downfield shots off of play action have a better chance than usual of hitting this week. The Commanders have been victimized by poor tackling and undisciplined defensive tendencies this season, and this Falcons attack is primed to pick them apart when they overcommit to expected running plays. Desmond Ritter is using his legs as a weapon, and sometimes a young quarterback just needs a game like Ritter had against the Texans to spark their confidence and get them rolling. The Falcons struggled in back-to-back weeks against the Lions and Jaguars, who are two very good teams with strong defenses. In their other three games, they have been very good, and they produced over 430 yards of total offense against both the Packers and Texans. Given the struggles of the Commanders' defense, I expect this Falcons offense to have their best offensive game of the year and cash in on their plethora of young, explosive talent. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a relatively wide range of outcomes, as there is always the possibility of a poor Commanders' offensive showing, allowing the Falcons to play close to the vest and drain the clock. On the flip side, Commanders' games have been fantasy gold so far this season, with three games totaling 60-plus points through five weeks, and Washington's last four opponents all scoring 33 or more points. The Falcons' offense and Arthur Smith get a bad rap for being too conservative, but they are built to have their explosive games against teams whom they can put on their heels. The Jags and Lions have top-five run defenses and made Atlanta look feeble, but the Commanders' defense is bad enough against the run to set them up for explosive passing plays downfield. The Washington defense is likely too poor for the Falcons' offense to fail in this spot, but the overall scoring will depend on how much of a fight the Commanders can put up. If the Atlanta pass rush and perimeter corners expose Howell, it will be an ugly, low-scoring win for the Falcons. If Washington's offense is able to put up some first-half points, however, the game has a wide range of outcomes thanks to the explosive potential on both sides of the ball and the powder keg that Washington seems to provide for game environments. Vikings at Bears, kickoff Sunday, October 15th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 44. Game Overview, by Hilo. Justin Jefferson hit injured reserve this week with a hamstring injury. He'll miss the next four weeks. Quick side note there, I don't personally believe he would pull some our team is out of it and Kirk Cousins got traded, so I'll prolong this absence type antics. K.J. Osborne has run 194 routes this season, the 7th most in the league, 121 of which have come from the slot. That means we're likely to see both Jordan Addison and Brandon Powell involved from 11 personnel. The big question is whether it's Addison or Powell from heavy sets, 21 and 12 personnel. The Bears are likely to be in some deep water at running back this week. More on this later. How Minnesota will try to win. The Vikings continue to play with extreme pace, third fastest overall pace at 25.8 seconds per play, and extreme pass rates. First in pass attempts per game at 40.8, and fourth in pass rate over expectation on offense while Brian Flores does his best Wink Martindale impression on defense, leading the league in blitz rate by more than 10%, but changing course from Martindale's man-heavy ways to run league average rates of man and zone behind it. While not necessarily successful in either defensive alignment, they have been far worse when in man, allowing 9.7 yards per target in that coverage compared to 7.1 when in zone. Considering teams typically play heavier rates of zone coverage against the Bears due to Fields' mobility and other rushing quarterbacks, expect that to be the percentage solution here. Cam Akers has played exactly 29% of the team's snaps in each week since being acquired prior to Week 4, 
but his opportunity share shot up in his second time out for the Vikings. That said, the negative game environment against the Chiefs could be the primary causal factor there as he saw exactly seven opportunities in each game. The negative game environment last week also led to reduced rates of 12 personnel and a larger emphasis on 11 personnel, which included higher utilization of fullback C.J. Hamm in the backfield with no other back, reducing Alexander Madison's snap rate to just 51%. It doesn't seem like a full takeover from Akers is imminent here, but we could see a continued emphasis on Ham in game environments where the Vikings find themselves behind. Contrary to popular belief, the Bears' run defense is non-terrible, allowing just 1.17 yards before contact and 3.7 yards per carry this season. Consider the Bears a pass-funnel defense until further notice. Continuing that discussion, Chicago has yielded 7.7 net yards per pass attempt this season, which ranks second worst in the league behind only the Broncos, who are a true attack-them-however-you-want and less pass-funnel, but that's neither here nor there. The Bears are in man coverage at the fourth-highest rate this season and allow a startling 9.0 yards per target against when in zone, second-worst in the league. Gone are Jefferson's 24% targets per route run rate against zone coverage this season, and it isn't likely to be K.J. Osborne that soaks those looks up considering his paltry .22 fantasy points per route run against zone coverages this year. Addison has a 16.9% targets per route run rate and .39 fantasy points per route run against zone coverages this year and stands as the player likeliest to see the largest boost to his counting stats and utilization rate in the absence of Jefferson. Tight end TJ Hawkinson is a natural zone beater in his current role and stands to see a slight uptick in targets per route run rate without Jefferson in the lineup, but a 6.6 ADOT with just one deep target on the season leaves him a thin needle to thread against any opponent, largely dependent on his ability to rack up targets and find the end zone, potentially more than once. Finally, Brandon Powell should step into an increased role from 11 personnel for the Vikings this week, and his familiarity with head coach Kevin O'Connell should keep him on the field from three wide sets. How Chicago will try to win Offensive coordinator Luke Getze and head coach Matt Eberflus seem intent on developing quarterback Justin Fields into a pocket passer that can also run and away from a mobile quarterback whose unique skill set can be leveraged into downfield work. That has led to some pretty sweet game logs for Fields, Alpha wide receiver DJ Moore, and tight end Cole Komet over the previous two games. Those two games came against the reeling Broncos, who hold the league's worst defense in almost every single metric this season, and the man-heavy Commanders, who Moore exploited for the best game of his career in Week 5. On the top level, Chicago is playing with pace, 10th ranked 27.9 seconds per play, with elevated rush rates, coming in at 23rd in pass rate over expectation. The Bears are likely to be in some deep water at running back this week. Rookie Roshan Johnson suffered a concussion in Week 5, Quick reminder that the only player to play the game immediately following a concussion this season was Packers tight end Luke Musgrave, and he entered the protocol on Thursday and didn't play again until Monday the next week. As in, Johnson isn't likely to play in Week 6. Khalil Herbert is doubtful with an ankle injury, and Travis Homer hasn't practiced, as of Thursday, with a hamstring injury. That leaves the bulk of the backfield to Donta Foreman, who has been a healthy and active in each of the previous four games, and Kari Blasingham, who is primarily a special teams player. I would loosely expect the Bears to adopt a more pass-balanced game plan considering the state of their backfield. Foreman is no slouch, but there is something to be said that he was a healthy and active for four consecutive games. Finally, the matchup on the ground is non-ideal against a Vikings team holding opponents to just 3.5 yards per attempt. DJ Moore ranks 8th in yards per route run at wide receiver, 2.98, 
15th in total air yards, 444, third in yards after catch, 229, and 14th in share of available air yards at 37.6%, while Cole Komet ranks 5th in yards per route run at tight end, 1.83, ninth in total air yards, 194, 8th in yak, 102, and 7th in share of available air yards, 16.4%. Over the previous two games, those two have accounted for a massive 75.9% of the team's receiving yardage and seven of the team's eight receiving scores. This pass offense is about as concentrated as they come currently. The Vikings rank 21st in net yards allowed per pass attempt at 6.3 and have allowed nine passing scores through five games, fifth most in the league. Darnell Mooney is the only other pass catcher to play meaningful snaps in this offense, but he currently holds a minuscule 11.9% targets per route run rate, albeit with a solid ADOT of 13.1. Likeliest game flow. The Vikings like to pass the football, are without their alpha wide receiver, and play one of the more pass-funnel defenses in the league in the Bears. The Bears like to run a run-balanced offense, but are likely to be without their top three running backs. A lot is pointing to a rather pass-heavy affair between these two teams this week. Even so, the Vikings are likely to want to utilize increased rates of 12 personnel for as long as they can in this spot, meaning the path to this game environment erupting likely goes through the Bears. Not necessarily a terrible place to be based on recent history. Luke Getze has demonstrated an excellent ability to game plan for his opponents over the previous two weeks, but has struggled with game management and adaptability deeper into games, which has translated to elevated levels of scoring in the first half that falls off in the second half, in Week 4 and Week 5. The Bears have scored 48 first-half points in their previous two games and just 20 second-half points. But that plus to game planning is a boost to the expected game environment here, considering the Vikings truly open up their offense to elite levels of passing when playing from behind. Seahawks at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, October 15th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45. Game Overview by Hilo. We don't have an injury report from the Seahawks coming off their bye, but it appears as if DK Metcalf did not practice on Monday when the team returned to the field. Quarterback Geno Smith was forced from the team's Week 4 win over the Giants with a knee injury, but appears set to play against the Bengals. The biggest injury concerns from Seattle are in their secondary and along their offensive line. Expect updates later in the week. Geno Smith ranks dead last in attempted air yards per pass attempt this season, likely attributable to an offensive line struggling through injuries and allowing pressure at the second highest rate in the league. Kenneth Walker gets the best matchup on the ground of the young season against a Bengals defense allowing 1.62 yards before contact per carry, 30th in the league. T. Higgins is an interesting case study in pain management, as his rib injury is highly unlikely to get worse by playing, but is equally as likely to be extremely painful whenever he is touched in the torso. That said, the team did not send him to injured reserve, keeping the possibility of him being active on game day open. Is Joe Burrow now fully healthy? There is no way of knowing for sure, but the Cincinnati signal caller remained exclusively in the gun against the Cardinals, but he did demonstrate a little more escapability and mobility when under pressure. How Seattle will try to win The best way to describe the way the Seahawks try to win games is to relate them to a battering ram. They are going to run their offense their way, which typically involves elevated rush rates, moderate pace of play, and controlled game environments with an emphasis on execution. The primary focus of their offense in game environments they can control is to chip away at their opponent, which then opens up downfield passing as a result. That said, one of the bigger changes this season when compared to past offenses is their willingness to open up the aggression should the game environment call for it, utilizing pace, 7th rank 27.7 seconds per play, 
and above average pass rates, and eighth ranked pass rate over expectation as needed. This is evident by looking at their game logs. With just 55 offensive plays run from scrimmage in their lone convincing win, 24 3 in week 4 over the Giants, and an average of 66 offensive plays run from scrimmage between a 13 30 loss to the Rams in week 1, 51 offensive plays, a 37 31 overtime win against the Lions in week 2, 72 offensive plays, and a 37 27 shootout win against the Panthers in week 3, 75 offensive plays. Even so, expect the game plan to involve elevated rush rates to begin and play-action passing built around that. With the understanding that the offense is now willing to alter course in the second half this season should the game environment call for it. Running back Kenneth Walker has been held to lead-back status as opposed to workhorse status, which makes sense considering previous coach tendencies amongst offensive coordinator Shane Waldron and head coach Pete Carroll. His 59.7% snap rate ranks 16th in the league, and his 67.3% opportunity share ranks 14th. Furthermore, and in true Seattle fashion, Walker has been in a route at a low 30.2% clip, relegating him to yardage and touchdown status. His 4.38 speed will always lend itself to explosive plays and breakaway runs, of which he already has four through four games, meaning the ceiling is most certainly still there. He also holds the most evaded tackles in the league while playing four games, compared to five for most other backs. The Seattle offensive line has been a relative hindrance, generating just 1.21 yards before contact per attempt. That has left the bulk of the onus on Walker to generate on his own, which he largely has done to this point in the season. That said, he now gets a matchup with a Bengals defensive front, allowing the third most yards before contact at 1.62 and the third most yards per carry at 5.3. This is a good spot on paper for Walker to get going. Backing up Walker as the strict change of pace back is rookie Zach Charbonnet, who has been between 24 and 26% snap rates in three of four games this season. DJ Dallas is head-scratchingly still a part of the offense, primarily reserved for clear passing situations and the two-minute offense. Finally, Walker has five rushing scores across the Seahawks' three wins, compared to zero in their only loss, meaning Walker likely goes as the offense goes moving forward. The offense utilizes extreme rates of 12 personnel in game environments they are able to control, departing only from that setup in their Week 1 loss to the Rams. They have averaged a 49.33% 12 personnel rate in their three games since Week 2, which had the largest impact on rookie wide receiver Jackson Smith and Jigbus snap rate to date. Alpha wide receiver DK Metcalf has played just 71% of the team's offensive snaps over the previous two games, which could be related to a rib injury he picked up in the team's Week 2 overtime win over the Lions. Tyler Lockett has also seen his snap rates drop during the previous two games, averaging just 75% of the team's offensive snaps during that stretch. JSN appears to remain capped at 60% of the offensive snaps, again, attributable to the team's elevated 12 personnel rates. The dip in snap rates for Lockett and Metcalf have directly benefited undrafted free agent Jake Bobo, who has averaged just under 40% of the team's offensive snaps during the most recent two-game stretch. In his 2022 career resurgence year, Geno Smith held respectable marks in intended air yards per pass attempt, 7.6, and completed air yards per pass attempt, 4.4, but has struggled to begin the 2023 season, league worth 6.2 intended air yards per pass attempt, and a 22nd ranked 3.6 completed air yards per pass attempt. That dip is likely attributable to a 31st-ranked pressure rate allowed from the offensive line that continues to struggle through injury. A matchup with a Bengals defense generating pressure at a below-average 21.7% clip 
could allow Geno to attack more aggressively downfield. How Cincinnati will try to win. I mean, I have no clue how this team is trying to win games anymore. I got extremely excited after seeing head coach Zach Taylor actively scheme Jamar Chase touches to try and exploit too high in week 3. I hyped them up in week 4, only for them to completely go away from that game plan. So I preached caution in week 5, with the team coming in at extreme ownership, only for them to revert back to doing some forward-leaning stuff on offense against the Cardinals, and for Chase to break the slate, whom I completely faded, and contributed to my now-famous screenshot on Twitter of a full 150 rosters not cashing a cent. I would like to think Taylor has metaphorically seen the light after trading good and bad performances over the previous three games, but we can't say with any degree of certainty that those tendencies will continue forward, considering his robust history of struggling to exploit too high and cover three looks, which the Seahawks are going to play a lot of. On the top level, the Bengals are running a moderately paced offense, 16th ranked 28.7 seconds per play, with extreme pass-heavy tendencies, 5th ranked pass rate over expectation, and a robust 39.6 pass attempts per game, the latter of which ranks 4th in the league. In what has now become an all-too-familiar setup, Joe Mixon maintains a stranglehold on the backfield opportunities for the Bengals, but has struggled through poor efficiency and horrid metrics in the red zone. His 84.7% opportunity share ranks 4th in the league, and he remains involved in the pass game with 17 targets through 5 games. That said, his true yards per carry ranks 29th at 4.1. He has evaded only 8 tackles this season, putting him 32nd. He has just one breakaway run, good for 29th, and he continues to get stifled near the goal line. 10 red zone opportunities and just one touchdown, including two more goal line opportunities stuffed in week 5. The Bengals are blocking to just 1.36 yards before contact, and the Seahawks have allowed just 1.17 yards before contact through 5 weeks their fifth best in the league. That's what we've come to expect from Mixon and this Bengals offense. Even so, and as we saw last season, Mixon's role is likely to lead to a blow-up game or two this season. On paper, this shouldn't be one of those instances. Travion Williams maintains his role as primary change of pace back, but has not played more than 16 offensive snaps in any game this year. Jamar Chase truly is unguardable. He managed a whopping 19 targets in Week 5. 15 of which he was deemed open or wide open by PFF. Taylor also returned to heavy rates of pre-snap motion for Chase, heavy rates of slot utilization, and heavy rates of quick hits designed to get Chase the ball in space in Week 5. Whether or not those tendencies from Taylor continue into Week 6 is the biggest question here, not whether or not Chase can win in any matchup. The heavy rates of cover 2, cover 3, and 2 high tendencies from the Seahawks defense would theoretically lend itself to a similar game plan from Taylor regarding Chase's utilization, but again, we can't be certain considering a rather robust history of failed game plans during Taylor's tenure in Cincinnati. Chase is a boss. His offensive play caller and head coach has been slow to adjust to a changing defensive landscape around the league. As we discussed leading into Week 5, slotman Tyler Boyd's role was highly unlikely to grow in the absence of T. Higgins, and we saw that play out in the team's win over the Cardinals. Trenton Irwin stepped into a 76% snap rate on the perimeter and saw a massive 10 targets catching 8 of them for 60 yards, and dwarfing Boyd's 7 targets and 39 yards. Irwin should be considered the semi-direct replacement for Higgins, should the latter be unable to play through a painful rib injury against the Seahawks. Finally, tight end Irv Smith has not been a large part of the offense in his first year with the team, ranking near the bottom of the league in yards per route run through three healthy games. Expect Drew Sample and Mitchell Wilcox to remain involved, albeit in more robust blocking roles. 
The big picture is this offense is heavily based on 11 personnel and should continue to feed the players that can win themselves because Taylor has been inconsistent in designing an offense to exploit the defensive tendencies of his opponents. Likeliest Game Flow There are multiple aspects of this game that contribute to a rather wide range of potential outcomes as far as the game environment goes. First, the Jekyll and Hyde nature of the Cincinnati offense that has been introduced via sporadic play-calling tendencies makes their offensive success largely dependent on how head coach Zach Taylor calls the game. Second, the Seahawks have largely been unable to fully control game environments as they would otherwise like outside of their Week 4 win over the Giants. Third, the Bengals' defense has not been able to generate much pressure on opposing quarterbacks, which has been one of the largest shortcomings of the Seattle offensive line. And finally, injury uncertainty surrounding T. Higgins, Joe Burrow, D.K. Metcalf, the Seattle offensive line, and the Seattle secondary could shift the dynamics of this matchup as the week progresses. As things currently stand, we should be viewing this spot as we typically do when we encounter a game with a wide range of outcomes. Look to be underweighted ownership and look to be overweight if the pieces are largely going overlooked. Although not exponentially more likely than other outcomes present here, a game environment where the Seahawks are able to control the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball is slightly more likely, making Kenneth Walker the most intriguing piece on paper. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. 49ers at Browns. Kickoff Sunday, October 15th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 36. Game Overview by Hilo. 49ers running back Elijah Mitchell got in his first limited session on Thursday after missing the previous two games and Week 2 and being out on Wednesday, keeping the door cracked open for a potential return to action in Week 6. Center Joel Batonio, tight end David Njoku, and QB Deshaun Watson have yet to practice for the Browns this week. As of Thursday, current reports are that Watson is unlikely to play after missing Week 4. Subsequent DNPs coming off a of bye week are not ideal. This game pits the top two defenses by points allowed per game and the first in Cleveland and the third in San Francisco by yardage allowed per game this season. The Browns rank first in place per game, largely induced by their suffocating defense, while the 49ers rank 18th in place per game, largely suppressed by their elite offensive efficiency and splash play generation on offense. Fifth-round rookie QB Dorian Thompson-Robinson drew the start for the Browns in Week 4 and is likely to do so again should Watson be unable to go which appears likely. Brandon Ayuk leads all pass catchers in fantasy points per route run against man coverage in 2023, and the Browns run man coverage at the league's second highest rate. How San Francisco will try to win. It's been business as usual for the 49ers through the first five weeks. They are one of only two teams that remain undefeated, along with Philadelphia. They lead the league in points allowed per game on defense at a tiny 13.6, and they rake second in the league in scoring at 33.4 points per game behind only the otherworldly Dolphins. What's not to like about this team right now? From an organizational standpoint, head coach Kyle Shanahan continues to operate one of the more forward-leaning offenses, one that is now coming into its own and has players capable of beating both man and zone coverage on the ground and through the air. The addition of Christian McCaffrey last season gave the 49ers four elite-level athletes to build around. He joined wide receivers Debo Samuel, the motion man, and Brandon Ayuk, the man-beater, as well as tight end George Kittle the most well-rounded tight end in the game. 
Jim Schwartz's man-heavy defensive scheme is playing like a true top unit in the league, but this 49ers team has the pieces to exploit those aggressive tendencies, particularly considering opposing quarterback Deshaun Watson appears unlikely to play in Week 6, failure of the Cleveland offense is likely to lead to shorter fields and increased time of possession for the 49ers. McCaffrey has played 85% or more of the team's offensive snaps in three of five games this season, one of which came with a healthy Elijah Mitchell. The two games where he failed to eclipse an 85% snap rate were a 30-12 drubbing of the Giants in Week 3 and the team's recent 42-10 drubbing of the Cowboys in Week 5. In other words, McCaffrey has played in a true workhorse role in all but the most positive game environments this season, with an absurd 88% of the running back touches to come from players other than McCaffrey coming late in the third quarter or in the fourth quarter of blowout wins. It's almost laughable looking at McCaffrey's underlying metrics this season, He has 32 red zone opportunities through five games, 99 carries, and 24 targets, a 70.8% route participation rate, and five breakaway runs. And yet, the dynamism of the 49ers offense has meant he has seen a stacked box on just 14.1% of his carries, 26th in the league. He's just that dude. The Browns have held opposing backs to a minuscule 3.2 yards per carry this season, tops in the league, so the matchup is not perfect, but he is that dude. The Browns rank second in net yards allowed per pass attempt at 4.2, which is truly remarkable considering they rank first in yards allowed per carry as well. This defense is no joke. That said, the 49ers have no less than four players who perform at elite levels against man coverage, and the Browns find themselves in man coverage at the second highest rate in the league, second only to the Cowboys, whom the 49ers just shredded in Week 5. Brandon Ayuk has an absurd 29.2% targets per route run rate against man coverage and leads all receivers in fantasy points per route run against man coverage this season. We also all just saw what tight end George Kittle can do against man coverage, scoring three touchdowns on as many receptions in Week 5 against the Cowboys. The player most likely to see adverse effects from the matchup is Debo Samuel, who ranks 55th in fantasy points per route run against man this season. Finally, McCaffrey should also remain heavily involved through the air, but gets a tough matchup against an elite linebacking core. How Cleveland will try to win. The Browns rank 27th in overall pace of play at 29.5 seconds per play, and remain of the run-balanced variety in offensive design, shifting slightly to a more pass-balanced approach after the season-ending injury to running back Nick Chubb. Quarterback Deshaun Watson appears likely to miss this contest after consecutive DNPs coming off the team's bye week, which would place fifth-round rookie Dorian Thompson-Robinson in line to start for the second straight game. The Browns were able to muster just 194 yards of offense against another stout defense in the Ravens in Thompson-Robinson's last start, a game where the rookie also tossed three interceptions and took four sacks. The team attempted 36 passes to just 25 rush attempts in that game, which should be a telling baseline for our expectations against the 49ers. Jerome Ford continues to lead this backfield after the injury to Nick Chubb, even after the additions of Pierre Strong and Kareem Hunt. That said, Hunt rejoined the team in Week 3, and Strong came over just before the start of the season, so we could see a slight shift in the dynamics with the team coming off their bye week. Either way, none of these backs are overly efficient, and the Browns now appear likely to be without their starting center after consecutive DNPs to start the week. The 49ers have allowed just 1.14 yards before contact, second in the league, and 3.7 yards per carry, ranked 11th in the league while the Browns have somewhat quietly struggled in run-blocking metrics this season, blocking to a league-low 1.06 yards before contact. This does not appear to be the spot to take a flyer on one of these cheap backs. Tight end David Njoku played through horrific burns to his hands and face in Week 4 after an incident at his home, 
meaning the fact that he has yet to practice this week means very little. Also, holy crap, dude. The Browns utilize a tight spread of snap rate and opportunities amongst their four primary pass catchers, with Njoku joined by wide receivers Amari Cooper, Elijah Moore, and Donovan Peoples-Jones, all of whom typically play over 80% of the team's offensive snaps and what has become a very 11-personnel-heavy offense under offensive coordinator Alex Van Pelt. The heavy zone rates of the 49ers' defense have led to elite underlying metrics against the pass this season, with a pressure rate that is roughly 5% higher than their 20.1% blitz rate. San Francisco holds the league's second-best coverage grade when in zone, while no pass catcher holds a targets-per-route run rate over 18.6% against zone coverages for the Browns. Again, nothing in this spot jumps off the page for DFS purposes. Likeliest Game Flow Even though Deshaun Watson has not played up to lofty preseason expectations to this point in the season, his absence would likely place the Browns in a tough spot to move the ball against the 49ers' defense. That would likely place additional stress on a defense that has, by all regards, performed as the top unit in the league this season. We saw that setup transpire in the team's Week 4 loss to the Ravens, where they only scored three points and routinely gave the Ravens short fields that placed additional stress on their defense. That would be the likeliest scenario here, with San Francisco just too good of an all-around team to feed short fields and get away with it. That is likely to lead to a game environment that begins as a legitimate slugfest and slowly transitions to a game where the 49ers are able to control, effectively forcing the Browns into increased aggression as the game moves on and opening up more opportunities for their defense to capitalize on mistakes. That scenario would likely lessen a bit should Watson be able to play, but that currently seems like a long shot. Saints at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, October 15th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42 and a half. Game Overview by Pappy Damian Pierce is underpriced for his role. Nico Collins is underpriced for his role. Robert Woods has seen 40 targets through five weeks. Alvin Kamara is the engine of the Saints' offense. Derek Carr looked healthier last week. The Saints' defense runs a complex scheme that could confuse C.J. Stroud. How New Orleans will try to win The 3-2 Saints come into Week 6 off a dominant 34-0 performance on the road against the Patriots. The 34 points against an injured but still quality defense looks like an offensive explosion, but the Saints' defense dominated the game. The Saints' defense generated a pick six and two sacks, but more than anything, they didn't let the Patriots get first downs. The Pats finished with a puny 156 total yards. The Saints' defense isn't elite at anything, but is good at everything. Dennis Allen comes from the defensive side of the ball, and it makes sense that his team would take on a win-on-defense mindset, which is exactly how this team is trying to get it done on Sundays. The Saints' season-long outlook was improved when Derek Carr, albeit on only 26 attempts, looked much better than the previous week. They have played up-tempo, pass-leaning football when everyone is healthy and the game is close. However, they are trying to win on the defensive side of the ball. Their pass attempt totals of 26, 39, 34, 37, and 33 are interesting compared to the game script. The 26 attempts came in a lopsided win, the 39 attempts came in a lopsided loss, and the moderate attempt totals came in one-score games. The Saints are a game-flow-dependent team willing to pass but would rather throw under 35 times and play good defense. The, quote, run-funnel Texans are one of the most obvious spots to attack on the ground. Run Funnel is in quotes because after getting trampled on the ground to start the year, the Texans held the vaunted Falcons running backs to 86 yards on 32 carries. A stunning 2.7 yards per carry. The Saints offensive line has been poor overall, 22nd ranked per PFF, but played well last week, 
highlighted by Eric McCoy's highest grade among all offensive linemen. Is this a weakness-on-weakness or strength-on-strength matchup? Pete Carmichael Jr. isn't likely to care. He runs a bland offense that uses play-action and pre-snap motion at some of the lowest rates in the league. He isn't the type of offensive coordinator to adjust for specific opponents, and it's reasonable to expect another game of moderately leaning pass rates while hoping the defense can be dominant. How Houston will try to win The 2-3 and three Texans come into Week 6 fresh off a heartbreaking two-point loss to the Falcons. In what was expected to be one of the biggest mismatches of the week, the Texans sold out to stop the Falcons' run game and held them to a pitiful 2.7 yards per carry. Unfortunately, Desmond Ritter showed he could win a game when forced and lit up the previously solid Texans' pass defense for 329 yards. Still, D'Amico Ryans deserves much credit for how feisty his team has played. The Texans are one of the only two teams in the league, the other is the Rams, with a losing record and a positive point differential. Bobby Slowick and C.J. Stroud are the biggest reasons for the turnaround. Slowick has installed a balanced offense willing to run or throw based on the individual game conditions. The Texans' pass attempt totals of 35, 31, 30, 47, and 44 are telling when you compare them to game flow. The two games over 40 attempts came in losses, the two 30 attempts came in wins, and the 35 attempt game was last week in their only close game. The Texans want to play balanced but are willing to throw or take the air out of the ball, depending on the scoreboard. Slowick is willing to adjust based on an opponent's weakness, but the Saints' defense doesn't present an obvious point of attack, so he's likely to lean on the team's strengths, which has been its passing. The Texans' offensive line got a significant boost last week with the return of left tackle Laramie Tunsil and left guard Titus Howard. Tunsil was dominant as a pass protector, recording PFF's highest pass-blocking grade of the week for any tackle. The Texans' O-line improvement, 16th ranked by PFF, will help Stroud, who only felt pressure on three of his 35 pass attempts last week. The Saints are one of the most adaptable and best-schemed defenses in the league, with Dennis Allen being one of the few coaches who calls both 3-4 and 4-3 concepts. The Saints are similarly confusing in coverage, leaning more on man than other teams, but mixing in plenty of zone, making them one of the most unpredictable defenses. Slowick has his work cut out for him in this matchup, and he is likely to take a figure-out-what-works approach, trying to start pass-balanced and being willing to lean into the pass or the run, depending on what's winning on the field. This Texans game plan is more likely to be affected by game flow than by a preconceived method of attack. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a lowish total of 42.5, with the Saints installed as small 1.5 point road favorites. Those numbers make sense. The Saints defense has looked strong, their scheme is confusing for a rookie QB, and the Texans offense has struggled to get anything going on the ground. It will be tough for the home team to put up 20 points. The Saints are helmed by a defensive coach who wants to be a defensive team. They're happy to play pass-balanced, up-tempo football when things are close, but they'll back off and try to protect any lead, making their game outcomes highly scoreboard-dependent. The Texans aren't much different, and this game is expected to stay close, but either team taking the lead would result in the team ahead taking their foot off the gas. There aren't a lot of paths to this becoming a back-and-forth shootout, with the most likely outcome being a game where both teams try to play balanced and limit their mistakes. Colts at Jaguars. Kickoff Sunday, October 15th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 45.5. Game Overview by Hilo. The biggest injury news from this one is clearly Anthony Richardson, who was placed on injured reserve Wednesday with an AC joint sprain. 
That is going to cost him at least four weeks of his rookie season. Richardson has now finished just one of the four games he started this year, missing another with a concussion. Tight end Mo Alley-Cox did not practice Wednesday after suffering a concussion in Week 5. Zay Jones did not practice with a knee injury sustained in Week 5. He appears legitimately questionable to suit up early in the week. Shaquille Leonard and Quiddy Pay returned to practice Wednesday after missing Week 5 with concussions. Jonathan Taylor immediately returned to the lineup in Week 5 after inking a three-year extension with the Colts and should continue to see his snap rate and opportunity share increase with time. How Indianapolis Will Try to Win Indianapolis remains top five in the league in pace of play, 26.2 seconds per play, but has fallen to bottom five in pass rate over expectation. The now 3-2 Colts played the Jaguars tough in Week 1, beat the Texans on the road in Week 2, beat the Ravens on the road in Week 3 in overtime, lost to the Rams in overtime in Week 4, and beat the Titans in Week 5, all while having to alter their game plan in two of those games due to the early departure of Richardson who also left week one, but that departure happened just before the two-minute warning in the second half, and starting their backup quarterback in another. They now prepare to face the Jaguars for the second time this season with their backup quarterback, with the winner of this game left alone atop the AFC South through a third of the season. When we get later in the season, we often talk about the additional magnitude of the games with playoff implications on the line. This game carries about as many playoff implications as you will find in week six of an NFL season, and should be viewed as a relative must-win for both sides. Shane Steichen has largely approached games by attempting to win in the trenches, but has also largely been unable to fully unleash his offensive designs while dealing with a rookie quarterback and so many moving pieces from which to build around through the first five weeks. These next four weeks should be rather telling from an organizational standpoint, as they should hopefully give Steichen some stability to plan and manage around. In these two teams' first meeting, Colts quarterbacks attempted 39 passes compared to 16 running back carries and 10 totes from Richardson. In the Colts' Week 3 win over the Ravens, a similar setup defensively, pass funnel and elevated zone rates, Gardner Minshew attempted 44 passes to 35 running back carries and did not see a rush attempt himself. Small sample size alert, but we should expect a baseline of 36 to 40 pass attempts for Minshew in this spot. The matchup tilts to the air with the Jaguars' defense allowing just 3.7 yards per carry, ranked 10th, but allowing 6.9 yards per pass attempt, ranked 28th. Let's make this very clear up front. We have no clue what the running back opportunity split is going to look like between Taylor and Moss this week. What we know is that Taylor's Week 5 game action was his first game snap since Week 14 of the 2022 season, and we have indication from Steichen that the team intends to gradually ramp up his involvement with the only time frame given being a month. Now those are just words, but we also saw them hold Taylor to just 10 offensive snaps in Week 5. Side note, the outrage from the fantasy community over this made me chuckle, as Steichen literally told us this was likely to be the case, but that's neither here nor there. I think it's fair to say Moss is unlikely to garner an 80% snap rate or 78% opportunity share here, 28 carries and 2 targets compared to 6 carries and 1 target for Taylor, but the actual split is completely up in the air at this point for Week 6. The matchup on the ground is non-ideal against the Jaguars' defense facing the fourth-fewest rush attempts per game, 22, behind just San Francisco, Philadelphia, and Detroit, so the snap rate split might not matter here. Minshew does not bring the same profile to the table as the departing Richardson, the former much more pocket passer and timing quarterback than the latter. On Minshew's 83 pass attempts this season, Michael Pittman has garnered a target share of 28.9%, while rookie Josh Downs checks in at 24.1%.
From a fantasy perspective, it's the same story for both of these guys. Modest ADOT, 7.3 for Pittman and 6.3 for Downs, and modest yards per route run values, 1.58 for Pittman and 1.22 for Downs, means a lot has to go right for either of them to return a viable GPP score. Alec Pierce remains the Z-type downfield threat safety manipulator of this offense with a robust 17.7 ADOT, but he's been utilized in full-on MVS fashion this season with a putrid 9.5% targets per route run rate. That latter figure ranks 100th in the league. There are 32 NFL teams, each with three primary wide receivers, meaning there are wide receiver fours with a higher targets per route run rate than Pierce this season. That is something that could theoretically change in an instant, considering this offense appears to have been simplified by Steichen to make things as easy as possible on his rookie quarterback, but those are not great numbers, friends. Finally, the Jaguars have faced 36.2 pass attempts per game this season, the 11th most, largely by filtering the opposition to the air via a stout run defense, as opposed to consistently putting teams in negative game environments and forcing them to play in catch-up mode. How Jacksonville will try to win the Jaguars rank near the middle of the league in pace, 15th ranked 28.4 seconds per play, but ranked 9th in PROE, averaging the third most plays per game, 69.6, 9th most pass attempts per game, 36.6, and a surprising, at least to me, 30.4 rush attempts per game. As such, we should primarily be viewing this offense as one of the more balanced units in the league instead of simply seeing that they rank top 10 in PROE and assuming they want to lean into the pass relentlessly. The other primary data point we have on this team through five weeks is a 20th-ranked 21.0 points per game scored, which has left the Jaguars as a case of haves and have-nots. To paint that picture another way, the Jaguars have scored more than three touchdowns in a game just once this season through five games played, largely leveraging a defense that is allowing under 21 points per game to grind out wins when able. They've also had all five primary skill position players, Travis Etienne, Calvin Ridley, Zay Jones, Christian Kirk, and Evan Ingram on the field together for just one full game to this point in the season due to injury issues with Jones. That makes their elevated 12 personnel rates, between 30 and 60% in every game this season, more understandable, although it does appear it could be by design, 59% 12 personnel rate in their week one convincing win over the same Colts team. ETN holds truly elite marks for top-level metrics with a 79.6% snap rate, good for 5th, 77.3% opportunity share, ranked 8th, 71.2% route participation rate, ranked 5th, 95 carries, 2nd, and 21 targets, also 8th. But he's struggled with his underlying metrics thus far. His 3.7 true yards per carry ranks 41st in the league. His 4.8 yards per touch ranks 21st, and he has seen just five red zone touches through five games, ranks 39th. Woof. And he holds a minuscule 2.9% breakaway run rate, which puts him 37th. Taken in the context of his carries coming behind an offensive line blocking to 1.5 yards before contact, ranked 10th, these numbers appear even worse. Either way, volume is king at the position, and ETN continues to carry elite volume on a weekly basis. The matchup is far from ideal on paper against a Colts defense allowing just 3.8 yards per carry this season. The biggest struggle of the Indianapolis run defense this season has been keeping backs out of the end zone, having allowed seven rushing scores through five games, which is tied for fifth most. But there's something to be said about ETN's modest red zone involvement to this point in the season. Although not overly involved in the offense, backup running back Tank Bigsby has seen three red zone opportunities to ETN's five 
on five times fewer snaps for an offense that tilts towards the air in the red zone. In other words, Bigsby appears to still be the goal line back after converting two of his three red zone opportunities into one-yard scores, while Etienne has just one touchdown from inside the red zone on five opportunities, with three of his rushing scores coming on long runs. This pass offense could change drastically depending on the status of Jones, who missed two games, weeks three and four, with a knee injury before leaving week five with another knee injury. He did not practice on Wednesday and appears to be on the wrong side of questionable to suit up against the Colts. In his absence, the leftover snaps were divvied up amongst Tim Jones, Jamal Agnew, who missed week four, and Jacob Harris. The macro perspective is that pass volume should only constrict if Jones misses week six, and the Colts have been highly susceptible to perimeter-wide receivers that are capable of exploiting zone coverages, particularly cover three, which the Colts play at one of the highest rates in the league. Ridley holds a solid 25.3% targets per route run rate against cover three this season, compared to just 16.2% for Christian Kirk and 25.3% for tight end Evan Ingram, ranking fifth in the league in total receiving yards against that primary coverage through five weeks. The micro matchup screams Ridley and Ingram, while the field is likely going to be highly interested in the cheaper Kirk after the latter logged 40 targets over the previous four weeks, 25 for Ridley and 32 for Ingram in that span, exactly eight in each game. Finally, Ridley averages an absurd 4.64 yards per route run against cover three this season. Likeliest game flow. Both of these teams have elite game planners for head coaches, with Steichen much more capable of altering course during the game than his counterpart in Jacksonville, Doug Peterson. We've talked about the static nature of Peterson's offensive design already this season. To reiterate, he has shown an elite ability to game plan for an opponent to start games. The only game they've lost by more than one possession involved a kickoff return touchdown after they pulled within seven points in the second half, but has been slow to adjust to in-game happenstances during the previous two seasons while coaching the Jaguars. That's an important discussion to be had here because this game is likeliest to play to a tightly contested contest between two divisional opponents that are fighting for the top spot in the AFC South. Yes, it's week six, but this is the final time these two teams will play this season. The Colts lost the first time around, but have the better divisional and conference record, and the Colts have a far different team dynamic than when these two teams first played, rookie quarterback in his first NFL appearance and without their franchise running back. Both teams are likely to begin the game attempting to win in the trenches, with the Colts the team more likely to open things up through the air. As such, it's actually the moderate pace and balanced nature of the Jaguars that is likeliest to drive this game environment, held relatively in check via the unwillingness of Peterson to alter his game plan during games. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Panthers at the Dolphins. Kickoff Sunday, October 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 47. Game Overview by Hilo. Running back Miles Sanders did not practice Wednesday with a shoulder injury. He has seemingly picked up new ailments with each game played this week. Javier Woods did not practice Wednesday with a hamstring injury. Cornerback Dante Jackson returned to a full showing Wednesday after missing week four with a shoulder injury. Running back Devon A. Chain was placed on injured reserve, while Jeff Wilson returned to a limited session Wednesday after having his 21-day practice window opened. There is likely to be significant interest in the Miami backfield this week, and for good reason. 
How Carolina will try to win. Frank Reich's Panthers have run an up-tempo offense, 28.3 seconds per play, with extreme pass rates, 40.4 pass attempts per game behind the 20th-ranked pass rate over expectation. But a lot of that has largely been due to necessity after playing through countless negative game scripts while sitting at an 0-5 record. In other words, the Carolina offense has been influenced primarily by their defense, which has allowed 1.46 yards before contact, given up 4.9 yards per carry, is tied with the Giants for most rushing scores allowed through five weeks, and allowed 6.1 net yards per pass attempt. The Panthers run zone coverages at one of the highest rates in the league, but have ceded the fifth most yards per coverage snap from the zone this season. To summarize, the Panthers have not been able to stick to their game plans due to a defense that has not yet performed to their potential, effectively forcing extreme pass rates as games have progressed. Not the best formula for a team with a rookie quarterback. Miles Sanders missed practice Wednesday with a shoulder injury that he sustained in Week 5. Sanders has seemingly been on the injury report every week since the season started, and now appears truly questionable for Week 6. Chuba Hubbard is the only other running back to see offensive snaps to this point in the season and would likely jump into a lead-back-plus role for the Panthers should Sanders be unable to go. The Dolphins have held the opposition to just 1.22 yards before contact and 4.0 yards per carry this season under newcomer defensive coordinator Vic Fangio's two-high-end zone-heavy 3-4 defense. Nothing about the matchup screams elite upside outside of a role that has yielded 38 targets to running backs this season, good for almost eight per game through five weeks. Should Hubbard serve as the primary back in the absence of Sanders, he could be set up well for six to eight targets in this spot at an affordable $4,300 in salary. Sanders being active would leave the backfield rather uninteresting, considering a split in snaps and opportunities that have been fairly even over the previous three weeks. Raheem Blackshear would be the likeliest back to step into change of pace duties behind Hubbard should Sanders miss. Veteran wide receiver Adam Thielen has been a product of the increased pass volume induced via negative game environments through five weeks, with his 46 targets the eighth most in the league. That said, his underlying metrics are far from elite. His 23.1% targets per route run ranks 37th. His 1.98 yards per route run ranks 34th. His 8.6 yards per target ranks 37th, and he has seen just two deep targets with a 7.4 ADOT. Even so, two games with 13 or more targets where he also found the end zone has returned 30-plus fantasy points twice in five games. Just realize his chances of breaking 100 yards and scoring a touchdown are rather slim, and if he isn't hitting those thresholds, he is likely to disappoint in a short area role. With DJ Shark and Jonathan Mingo fully healthy, the snap rate split amongst the team's wide receivers is extremely condensed amongst those three in an offense that plays almost exclusively from 11 personnel. Tight end Hayden Hurst has not played more than a 61% snap rate in any game this season. Shark's downfield role, 15.3 ADOT, brings theoretical upside should he finally connect with rookie quarterback Bryce Young. The too high-end defensive shell for the Dolphins makes the chances of a downfield strike through Shark less likely than in other matchups around the league. How Miami will try to win What more can we really say about Mike McDaniel's Dolphins that hasn't already been broken down in depth this season? The dude is legitimately pushing exploitative offenses forward into the future. That sounds grandiose, but it is the truth of the matter. 
when you get Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, and Bobby Slowick talking about how they are taking things from your offense to utilize in their own, you might be doing something right. Oh yeah, and they're fast. Teams know Tyreek Hill is running at them and are, correctly, giving him significant cushion. With defenders on their back foot, McDaniel then brings the outside zone and inside zone run concepts to punch you in the face, with a run play from McDaniel looking like a tornado ripping through the middle or outside of the field. His guards pull, his tackles extend, and his run-blocking concepts are constantly changing, making it an extremely difficult game plan to stop. And the Dolphins have also shown that they are plenty fine running up scores as they continue to tweak their offense moving forward, just ask the Broncos. This team has a fire in them to win, and it translates to the field each Sunday. Miami runs an up-tempo offense, 11th ranked 28.1 seconds per play, but has not needed the same extreme pass rates we saw last season when they ranked near the top of the league in pass rate over expectation which is likely due to a higher emphasis on these unique run-blocking concepts and a defense that is performing much better than a season ago. Devon A-Chain is that dude. Sadly, he was placed on injured reserve this week and will miss the next four games at minimum as he recovers from a knee injury sustained in the team's Week 5 win. That leaves just Raheem Mostert, Salvan Ahmed, and Chris Brooks as healthy backs currently on the roster with the caveat that the team opened Jeff Wilson's 21-day practice window this week as he attempts to return from IR himself. Should Wilson make it back in time for Week 6, I would expect Mostert to serve as the primary back, with Wilson the mix-in back, with the two likely sharing the bulk of the backfield load in tandem. Mostert is the home run back with elite speed, while Wilson has been trusted at a higher rate in the red zone during their shared time in Miami. Even so, Wilson and Mostert both ranked in the top 10 in breakaway run rate a season ago, while Mostert ranks 7th in 2023, and A-Chain ranks 1st. Clearly, this offense is built to foster fantasy success for its backs. The matchup is a positive one on paper against a Panthers team allowing 4.9 yards per carry, 28th, and 1.46 yards per four contact, 25th this season. Should Wilson not play in Week 6, I would expect Salvan Ahmed to enter Wilson's expected role in the offense as the two. As was covered above, the Panthers have run extreme rates of zone coverage under first-time defensive coordinator Ihiro Evero, who has attempted to overcome injuries and early-season communication issues through zone coverages. The talent on the defensive side of the ball for the Panthers is above average meaning this defense is likely to turn things around once they get some continuity in playing time together. That said, Tyreek Hill has been the absolute dog for the Dolphins against zone coverages this season, seeing an almost 37% targets per route run rate against zone through five weeks. At some point, Jalen Waddell is likely to get going in this offense, but we largely haven't seen designed plays to him just yet. He did score a touchdown early and saw double-digit targets for the first time this season in the team's Week 5 win over the Giants, but it feels as if McDaniels is taking an I-have-Tyreek-Hill-Raheem-Mostert-and-until-now-Devon-A-Chain, why would I concern myself with forcing work to my Porsche when I have three, two, now, Ferraris in the garage? That said, and again, at some point, Waddle is going to have a nuclear game. Behind the primary pieces in this offense, we find a mix of lower upside pieces in Braxton Berrios, Cedric Wilson, Robbie Chosen, River Craycraft, and Durham Smythe, all of whom don't sniff the upside of the primary pieces. Likeliest Game Flow I don't think you need me to tell you how this game is likeliest to play out, 
but here goes anyway. McDaniel's offense is likely to find success sooner rather than later, forcing the Panthers into all-too-familiar territory playing from behind. That should provide the Dolphins the opportunity to continue to tweak their offense to find new and unique concepts to take forward on their journey, with the Super Bowl in mind, while forcing the Panthers into the same elevated pass rates we have grown accustomed to. The inventor of the too-high defense that is sweeping the league should naturally filter aerial volume to Thielen and Chubbard, or Sanders if he plays, with secondary volume likeliest to flow through Jonathan Mingo. As for the Dolphins, the matchup sets up extremely well for their run game, but nothing in the matchup should prohibit the pass offense from finding success, so much of that passing offense flows through Tyreek Hill. Condensed volume plus the highest Vegas implied team total on the slate equals fantasy intrigue. The Patriots at the Raiders kick off Sunday, October 15th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson These teams rank 30th and 32nd in the NFL in scoring through five weeks. Familiarity between coaching staffs make this a bit more of a chess match than the average NFL game with layers to how these teams will approach it on both sides of the ball. New England injuries on the defensive side of the ball give Las Vegas the opportunity to have their best offensive game of the season. The Raiders have a promising schedule coming up and could vault themselves into the AFC playoff picture over the next five weeks. Mac Jones and Bill Belichick both have come under fire in recent weeks due to embarrassing defeats at the hands of the Cowboys and Saints. Another ugly performance against two former Patriots, Raiders head coach Josh McDaniels and quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo, could be a tipping point. How New England will try to win It's really hard to adequately explain how awful the Patriots' offense has been recently. They looked absolutely dreadful against both the Cowboys and Saints in the last two weeks. Their running game has no identity, they put no fear in their opponents down the field, and their quick game through the air is predictable and uninspiring. Their receivers do not do a good job of creating separation, Jones has shown no ability to make on-time and accurate throws with anticipation, and their offensive line ranks 29th in the PFF pass-blocking grade. They might be able to get away with some of those things if they had personnel who were capable of making plays after the catch, but no one in their receiving core is built in such a way. The results shouldn't be surprising when you look at all the ingredients. While the Saints and Cowboys have solid defenses, the Patriots made them look like superstars. Consider the fact that the dominant Dallas performance against New England was sandwiched between games where they gave up 28 points to the mediocre Cardinals and 42 points to the 49ers. Not good, Bill. Not good at all. This week, the Patriots face a Raiders defense that has been fine, but not great. They haven't looked dominant at any point this season, but only the Bills have scored more than 24 points against them. The Patriots don't look like a team that is ready to let Jones loose, and anyone who has watched the last two weeks can't blame them. And as explored above, their personnel is nothing to write home about. New England doesn't have a lot of options in terms of its approach, as the running game and short, quick passing is the Patriots' only viable means to move the ball without risking disaster. They will almost certainly enter with a conservative approach against a team that has not scored 20 points yet this season, and their hope for winning this game will rely on Belichick winning the chess match against McDaniels. How Las Vegas will try to win 
The Raiders have some serious talent among their skill players, but their talent is not particularly explosive. No one will argue with how good Devontae Adams or Josh Jacobs are, and Jacoby Myers is one of the more underrated wide receivers in the game. That being said, Jacobs is a bell cow back who does most of his damage through volume and versatility. Adams dominates in the red zone and is an extremely tough cover in the short to intermediate areas of the field, but he doesn't make plays deep down the field at the rate many of the top receivers in the league do. Myers is a similar receiver to Adams who can win with his technical acumen, physicality, and dynamic route tree. Once again, however, Myers has never been a dynamic downfield threat. The Raiders are an interesting case study in how talent doesn't always equal production if you don't have the ability to score from anywhere on the field. Las Vegas has yet to score 20 points in a game this season and is 30th in the league in points per game. This week against the Patriots, the Raiders face a struggling team that has been decimated with injuries on defense. New England will be without star rookie cornerback Christian Gonzalez, shoulder, and likely without Matthew Judon biceps. These holes make them more vulnerable in all areas, as their team is built upon the strengths those players provide at their respective points on the defense. In Week 5, Saints running backs Alvin Kamara and Kendra Miller racked up production on the ground and through the air as the Patriots were left scrambling behind an early deficit. The Saints were also able to move the ball reasonably well through the air, and the day could have been much better if not for a couple of critical drops. The Patriots play man coverage at one of the top rates in the league, but losing Gonzalez changes their dynamic and puts Adams and Myers in favorable situations. Those two continue to account for at least 50% of the team's targets on a weekly basis and should do the same this week with a good chance for success. New England has had a bend-but-don't-break defensive philosophy for a long time, and the Raiders should be able to move the ball well this week but Las Vegas's lack of explosiveness will likely keep them from putting up points quickly, and they will need to see a severe uptick in red zone efficiency. Likeliest Game Flow This game features two of the league's three lowest-scoring offenses, and both teams have enough familiarity with the other's scheme and approach to set up a potential low-scoring slugfest. Las Vegas should move the ball much better than New England, but the Raiders will need long drives and haven't been great in the red zone. They've converted only half of their red zone chances into touchdowns this season. This lack of scoring efficiency from the Raiders should allow the Patriots to stay conservative deep into the game. Both teams average less than one takeaway per game, which makes it less likely that the offenses make mistakes that lead to short fields to spark the scoring. The one hope this game has for a scoring outburst is if the Raiders are able to convert their early drives into touchdowns due to the injury situation New England is dealing with and the Patriots' offense wakes up in an easier matchup by playing at a faster pace. The Lions at the Buccaneers kick off Sunday, October 15th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 42.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson A matchup of division leaders, this game has potentially huge playoff implications. Detroit's offense has scored over 30 points in three of their five games, while the Bucks' defense has held three of four opponents to 17 points or fewer. Tampa Bay has not been involved in a game this year that combined for more than 44 points, while Detroit games are averaging 53.5 points over the last four weeks. The Bucks are coming off a bye, while the Lions look to get back two key offensive weapons.
How Detroit Will Try to Win On a weekly basis, I watch many NFL teams struggle to find any level of consistent offensive success, while also seeing the Lions find new and creative ways to move the ball without the true star power of explosive players on the roster. Amon Ross St. Brown is a very good receiver, but he isn't on the Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase, Tyreek Hill, among others, level of game-breaking talent. David Montgomery is a terrific NFL running back, but he isn't a dominant talent either. There must be a few NFL owners just salivating at the chance to get Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson in their building next year as he makes this team look effortlessly good on a weekly basis. Heck, last week the 49ers copied a play the Lions had run earlier in the day, and both teams scored touchdowns on it. When you have Kyle Shanahan making game-day adjustments to the playbook to copy things you're doing, you can be pretty sure you're doing something right. Outside of last week's game against the Panthers, the Lions' schedule hasn't really had any pushovers. Green Bay, Atlanta, Seattle, and Kansas City all have solid, well-coached units. That being said, the Bucks' defense likely presents the toughest challenge Detroit has seen this season. Coming off a bye and playing at home, the Bucks have held three of four opponents to 17 points or fewer so far this season, with the only exception being the high-flying Eagles who scored 25 points on them and managed 472 total yards. On the flip side, the Lions' offense is clearly the best offense Tampa has faced outside the Eagles as the Bucks controlled the game against the struggling Saints and Bears offenses while keeping the Vikings in check in Week 1. This creates an interesting situation where both the Lions offense and the Bucks defense are facing a tougher test than they are used to, and we get to find out which side's performance, so far, is more legitimate. The Bucks defense blitzes at the fourth highest rate in the NFL and mixes up their coverages between zone and man. The Bucks have 12 sacks on the season, but half of those came in one game against the Bears when Justin Fields was still playing in a fog. The Lions have a strong offensive line and allow the fourth lowest amount of sacks in the league, so this doesn't seem like a matchup where Tampa will be able to rely on heavy pressure to get the job done defensively. The Lions have established David Montgomery as their bell cow running back, and the emergence of tight end Sam Laporta has given them a legitimate running mate for Emin Ross St. Brown as a consistent and viable receiving threat. The Lions have several other good pieces, and Ben Johnson does a great job of getting the most out of all of them and leveraging their individual strengths. The Lions have run the ball on half of their plays this season, although game script has a lot to do with that, and Detroit is closer to league average in play-calling splits when games are still in question. Detroit expects St. Brown to return to the lineup this week and may get rookie running back Jameer Gibbs on the field as well. The Lions should be able to move the ball well, thanks to a well-schemed and balanced attack with their top three options, Montgomery, ARSB, and Laporta, on the field. How Tampa Bay Will Try to Win the Bucks' offense has been fine in their easier matchups, Bears and Vikings, and didn't have to do much against the Saints in Week 4 because of the ineptitude of the New Orleans offense. The one time they faced an offense that applied some pressure and had talent on defense, they folded like a cheap tent against the Eagles, as they managed only 174 total yards and scored only three points in the first 50 minutes of action. The Lions' defense is a formidable opponent that ranks top 10 in the NFL in DVOA against both the run and the pass. The Bucks' running game has been awful this year, ranking bottom 5 in the league in both DVOA and yards per carry. 
Those stats are especially alarming considering two of their opponents are not particularly good run defenses. This week, we should expect the Bucks to be forced to rely on their passing game to a greater degree than we have seen for most of the season. Their lack of balance or threat of a consistent running game is likely to make them more predictable and could cause some major problems for their offense. Expect a heavy dose of Mike Evans and Chris Godwin in the game plan, but there should also be some extra targets headed in the direction of tight end Kate Otten and running back Rashad White, as the team is forced to press for points and the Lions are likely to be focused on Evans and Godwin. The Seahawks and Panthers had some success throwing the ball against the Lions, and the Seahawks' offense profiles in a similar way to the Bucks. Geno Smith and Baker Mayfield are primarily pocket quarterbacks, but are willing to take off when necessary, while Mike Evans and DK Metcalf are the big-bodied perimeter receivers, and Chris Godwin and Tyler Lockett are the movable chess pieces who attack more in the middle of the field. Lockett had the big game against the Lions, and Adam Thielen also racked up production in the middle of the field last week, leading us to believe Godwin could be busy in this matchup as well. Tampa should enter this game knowing they will need more points than they've been able to get by on in several matchups this year, so they should be relatively aggressive early on, but may not truly open things up until, if when, the Lions get out to a lead. Likeliest Game Flow A big part of the hot start for Tampa Bay has been the fact that the Bucks lead the NFL in turnover margin per game. This week, they face a Lions team that is strong and efficient offensively, and does a terrific job of protecting the football. They had a tough outing against the Seahawks where they had three turnovers, but otherwise they have only three turnovers in their other four games. Tampa Bay's inefficient running game has been masked by the poor offenses they have faced in three of four weeks, but we should expect the Lions to apply some pressure this week and build a bit of a lead. The Lions are a well-coached, balanced, and occasionally explosive team. If it weren't for the early-season dominance of the 49ers and Eagles, the Lions would be getting a lot more attention. While both of these teams have only one loss and lead their respective divisions, the Lions appear to be stronger in terms of personnel and schematics. I trust the Lions to find ways to move the ball and score points, as they have scored at least 20 points and put up 350-plus yards of offense in every game this season. The Bucks are likely going to need their passing game to show up in this matchup if they want to keep pace. The paths to a close game or Bucks win in this one are through Tampa Bay passing game success or Detroit red zone failure. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Cardinals at the Rams kick off Sunday, October 15th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 48.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Arizona started the season playing very competitive football, but has shown signs of regression in recent weeks to the team we expected coming into the year. James Conner was placed on injured reserve this week, taking away a pillar of the Cardinals' offense. The Rams have started the season very well, and their current 2-3 and three record is a bit misleading. There isn't a particular strong point for either one of these defenses, while both offenses rate very well in most metrics. 
Los Angeles has two very talented wide receivers facing a defense with two of the bottom 10 cornerbacks in the league in PFF coverage grade. Arizona's defense has given up monster games to their opponent's top skill player in back-to-back weeks. How Arizona Will Try to Win Arizona's offense has performed well and exceeded expectations to start their 2023 NFL season. Quarterback Josh Dobbs has helped make this a more dynamic unit than most expected coming into the year, and the team has relied primarily on him and Connor as the pillars of this offense. Connor sustained a knee injury last week against the Bengals after a hot start to the game, however, and the Cardinals struggled from that point on. The Cardinals scored two touchdowns on their first four possessions with Connor in the game, taking a 14-10 lead about halfway through the second quarter. After Connor's departure, the Cardinals scored on only one of eight possessions and were outscored 24-6. While there were certainly other factors that contributed to those splits, there is no doubt that this was not the same team without Connor on the field. Arizona ranks slightly above the league average in tempo, seconds per snap, and passes at the 17th highest situation neutral rate in the league. However, the Cardinals turned more pass-heavy after Connor's departure, and therefore we can expect a more pass-heavy game plan for Week 6. Keontae Ingram and Imari DeMarcado are likely to both be involved as replacements for Connor, but neither is a game-changer, and Ingram is coming back from an injury of his own. The likely usage of those players would seem to be Ingram in a two-down role, and DeMarcado mixing in as a change of pace back with a pass-down role. We may also see an increase in usage for Rondale Moore, as he has been used in some creative ways to start the season. And without Connor, the Cardinals will be searching for ways to move the ball. The Cardinals' passing game will be relatively aggressive, with Marquise Brown as the focal point and Michael Wilson and the tight ends also seeing targets. Ultimately, most of the team's success will fall on the shoulders of Dobbs. Los Angeles plays primarily zone coverage and does not blitz often, trusting Aaron Donald and company to apply pressure without additional rushers. Dobbs will have to try to pick this secondary apart strategically and take what is given to him underneath. Dallas Goddard and A.J. Brown feasted last week, and the Cardinals' tight ends and Wilson may have some chances to sit down in zone coverage against this secondary. The Rams' defensive approach leaves a lot of defenders in coverage, and their below-average pressure rate should give Dobbs time to assess the situation and make plays with his legs when there is nothing downfield. Jalen Hurts had success rushing last week, and Dobbs should contribute on the ground as well in this matchup. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win In back-to-back weeks, the Cardinals have given up monster games to the focal points of their opponent's offense. In Week 4, Christian McCaffrey had over 170 yards from scrimmage and scored four touchdowns. In Week 5, Jamar Chase caught 15 passes for 192 yards and three touchdowns. Those are some truly incredible numbers and show that the Arizona defense either isn't interested or isn't capable of taking away a team's top option and preferred method of attack. Arizona's defense started the year strong against the Commanders, Giants, and Cowboys, with the exception of a big second half from the Giants. Their general philosophy is a conservative, zone-heavy scheme that focuses on preventing big plays and forcing their opponents to march the ball down the field. This strategy was successful against the Commanders because they played a conservative game and didn't have a focal point that they could rely on to move the ball. 
The Giants struggled as well due to a lack of passing game weapons, although they figured it out after halftime. Finally, the Cowboys moved the ball well against Arizona, but couldn't turn drives into points, primarily due to self-inflicted red zone issues. The big picture takeaway here is that the Cardinals' defense is designed in a way that is going to give teams fits if they don't have any truly elite skill players and or if their offense is not well designed. Taking all of that and applying it to this week's matchup for the Rams, this is a terrific spot for the Los Angeles offense. Cooper Cup returned to the lineup last week and promptly saw six targets on the first drive of the game, which he turned into five receptions for 56 yards. Cup ended the game with 12 targets for eight receptions and 118 yards, a very good return to the field after a lengthy absence. Meanwhile, Pukanakua maintained a massive role with 11 targets that he turned into seven receptions for 71 yards and a touchdown. The two combined for 23 targets on 37 Matthew Stafford pass attempts, a combined 62% target share. This week, the Rams face a Cardinals team that has two starting cornerbacks ranked in the bottom 10 in PFF coverage grades, and that was just absolutely shredded by a gimpy Joe Burrow targeting Chase 19 times. Chase's performance was impressive from his perspective, but alarming from that of the Cardinals, considering T. Higgins was out, and anyone who was watching the game knew on most plays exactly where the ball was going, but Arizona appeared helpless to stop it. The Rams' offense is likely to pick up right where the Bengals left off, relentlessly attacking the Cardinals with their elite duo of wide receivers who can attack at all areas of the field. These are crisp route runners, and Stafford is accurate with great timing. The Rams' offense stalled a bit last week against the Eagles primarily due to pressure up front and a game script that limited their number of possessions. The Cardinals rank 31st in the league in pressure percent and 30th in the league in blitz rate, so Stafford should feel very comfortable and in rhythm all game here. Similar to the Bengals, the Rams' ancillary receiving options should also gather a few relatively easy opportunities, as Arizona scrambles to keep up with a well-oiled passing attack. The Rams' offense will also run the ball and likely maintain a moderate level of success doing so, but the focal point of their offense will be on their best players, Stafford, Cup, and Nakua, and they should have a great deal of success. After a decent start to the season, the Cardinals have surrendered 69 points in the last two weeks, and the Rams' offense is well-coached with talent. Los Angeles should be able to move the ball up and down the field almost at will in this matchup, with red zone success being the only thing that might stand in their way. Likeliest Game Flow Zooming out to look at the first five weeks of the NFL season, the Rams are probably one of the more underrated teams in the league. That's a surprising statement to make about a team only a little over a year removed from hoisting the Lombardi Trophy, but true nonetheless. The Rams have a very young defense and struggled offensively last year, primarily due to injuries. Nakua's ascension as a strong second option, and Tutu Atwell as a legitimate threat, has changed the dynamic of this offense, however, and the defense is proving itself capable. The Rams have a 2-3 and three record, but when you dig into that, you can see that two of their losses were respectable showings against the 49ers and Eagles, clearly the top two teams in the NFC, and their other loss was a close one against the Bengals in a Super Bowl rematch. The schedule lightens up a bit going forward, and that starts this week against a Cardinals team that has lost some steam after an inspiring start. The Rams' offense should have no trouble moving the ball, and is likely to generate an early lead. 
Arizona's defense generally lets teams move the ball and hopes to limit them to field goals. But that strategy may be tougher this week without Connor available to sustain their own drives. As the Rams build a lead and apply pressure to the Arizona offense, they will have no choice but to open things up a bit and be more aggressive through the air. The Rams' run defense is nothing to write home about, but removing Connor from the equation and having to deal with Donald up front is likely to force Arizona to rely primarily on Dobbs to move the football. This game could quickly turn into a quarterback-centric matchup with Stafford dicing up the Arizona secondary and Dobbs being leaned on to make plays both with his legs and his arm. Los Angeles offensive success feels like a very good bet, and the Cardinals' offense is capable of moving the ball as well when they are pressed. The Cardinals play at a moderate pace that picks up when forced, while Los Angeles has really started to pick up the pace in recent weeks and should do so even more this week at full strength against a weak opponent. This game has a lot of potential to turn into a back-and-forth shootout or a Rams onslaught. The Eagles at the Jets. Kickoff Sunday, October 15th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The Jets look to ride their recent momentum for a critical game as they head into their bye week. Zach Wilson is going to need to make some plays for the Jets to have a shot in this game. Philadelphia's offense has struggled in the red zone, while New York's defense has excelled in the same area. Both teams rely heavily on their running game, and the Eagles are unlikely to take unnecessary risks early in the game. Wilson's passing grade and quarterback rating is actually okay when he has time to throw, but atrocious when he's pressured. The Eagles rank 6th in the league in QB pressure rate. How Philadelphia will try to win The Eagles' offense ranks 29th in the NFL in situation-neutral pass rate as they continue to rely on the legs of Jalen Hurts and have turned to DeAndre Swift in a featured role. The Eagles have arguably the top offensive line in the league and are 5-0 to start the year, so it's hard to blame them for that approach. Philadelphia's offense has taken a step back, however, at turning its offensive production into points this year. After ranking number three in the NFL in red zone TD conversion rate in 2022 at 68%, they rank 27th in the NFL this season at just 42.11%. The Jets actually face the most field goal attempts per game this year, as their offense has given up a lot of short fields, but their defense has held strong in scoring position. The Jets play man coverage at a top 10 rate in the league, and they have a great deal of trust in star cornerback Sauce Gardner on the perimeter. They also blitz at the fifth lowest rate in the NFL, as they trust their defensive front to get pressure and their personnel to handle their matchups in the secondary. The Eagles struggled last week against a Rams team that has a similar approach of blitzing at a very low rate. The Rams, however, primarily play zone coverage and the Jets' man scheme may allow the Eagles to break free for some scores. The Eagles are unlikely to fall behind in this matchup, or at least not to the point where they would need to panic, and the lack of fear Wilson puts in his opponents is unlikely to shake the Eagles off their relatively conservative play-calling split. Obviously, the Eagles have the personnel to have an explosion in any week but the expected game script and opponent here make it unlikely that they force the issue, which means it will take Jets' mistakes to let Philly break off big plays.
Considering the conservative, non-blitzing nature of the Jets' scheme, and the fact that Philadelphia can realistically count on giving Wilson plenty of opportunities to panic against its defensive pressure, the Eagles are likely entering this game expecting a slightly less competitive version of their own win over the Rams in Week 5. They should take control of the game eventually, but they won't need to press the gas to do so. How New York will try to win the Jets have had a roller coaster of emotions over the past several months and throughout the start of the 2023 season. After all of the excitement around the arrival of Aaron Rodgers, they promptly lost him for the season after four snaps in Week 1. After pulling off a miracle win over Buffalo that night, they dropped three straight games with Wilson as their quarterback before beating down the Broncos in Week 5. Wilson played very well in the Week 4 loss to the Chiefs, and the Jets unleashed Brees Hall in Week 5, setting the stage for this New York offense to perhaps become something above average if they can continue their positive trend. The Jets have a Week 7 bye, which is followed by three very winnable games against the Giants, Chargers, and Raiders. If New York can manage an upset at home over the Eagles this week, they will enter their bye with a 3-3 three three record excitement in the building, and a realistic chance to make a playoff run. This week, New York faces a tough test against an undefeated Eagles team that has looked solid on both sides of the ball, but has had a couple of subpar performances by their pass defense through five weeks. Washington and Minnesota scored 31 and 28 points, respectively, against the Eagles, and both teams did most of their damage through the air. This makes sense, as stud rookie Jalen Carter and running mate Jordan Davis dominate the interior of the defensive line and lead the Eagles' dominant run defense. This poses a serious problem for the Jets, as they are likely going to be most dangerous when they can run their offense through Hall while putting Wilson in advantageous positions strategically. Philadelphia likely won't have to do anything special to keep the Jets from having a dominant running game performance so the Jets are going to have to rely on Wilson to move the chains and find points. Wilson looked good against the Chiefs on national TV, but the mountain of evidence throughout his career so far makes it seem like a tall task that he will expose the Eagles' relative weakness when they aren't having to do anything special to handle the running game. The Eagles rank 6th in the NFL in pressure rate, and Wilson has been at his worst when under duress. The Jets need their defense to keep this game close and hope for the best. Likeliest Game Flow The Jets' offense is unlikely to have a great deal of success here, as their best method of moving the ball is going to be running into a brick wall this week, and their passing game has been improved the last couple of weeks, but is still not a unit we should expect to produce at a high level. The Jets' defense, meanwhile, has not allowed more than two touchdowns in a game yet this season. While the Eagles' offense is very good, Philadelphia has scored two or fewer touchdowns in three of five games this season against the Patriots, Bucks, and Rams. The two games where they had big offensive outputs were against the Vikings and the Commanders, clearly the two worst defenses they have seen this year. Putting all of this together, this profiles as a game that the Eagles control but are unlikely to completely blow the top off of. They likely won't feel enough pressure from a Wilson-led offense to aggressively chase points, and the Jets' defense is tough enough that the Eagles may struggle in the red zone. Philly ranks 27th in the NFL in red zone TD conversion rate, while the Jets' defense ranks 3rd in the league in holding their opponents to field goals. A big play from the Jets' passing game, or a long run from Hall, is the best way this game could be opened up, and a Wilson implosion could lead to an Eagles rout. 
Outside of those two circumstances, the most likely outcome here is a somewhat boring Eagles win, where they slowly pull away and the Jets protect Wilson early before reluctantly letting him throw the ball to Philadelphia defenders in the fourth quarter.